I take a large amount of notes to our men's retreat, not knowing exactly uh, where I'll want to go or how far I'll be able to get in the time that we have together. And, and we enjoyed looking at manly issues, at uh, biblical husbandry, biblical parenting, and applying the Word of God to ourselves as men, and then fellowshipping in and around those truths together. I'll ask that you open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for our final men's retreat message and Lord's Day message today, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and read with me there in verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must, first, must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And all of God's saints said, Amen. And so this is the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy and every pastor who would follow after and every man of God and by extension even every woman of God, every brother and sister bought by the blood of the Lamb. But in particular, it's to the men. In particular, it's to those that Christ has called to serve Him as men by biblical definition. And it's not open to redefinition. He has defined what it is to serve Him as a man. Let's give a basic exposition, and then I'm going to let Pastor Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, speak to you a great deal today on this text. I find it very edifying to read his sermons, and from time to time I will stand in his shoes and preach his very words for your edification, because what I find is that the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, has not changed, and that the war has not changed, and that our call to fight a good fight as good soldiers of Christ has not changed. And so let's look to verse 1 again. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, the elder apostle, the elder saint of God, the elder brother in the Lord of Timothy, a spiritual father in the faith, writes to him and calls him his son. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There are brothers and there are fathers, spiritually speaking. There are sisters and there are mothers, spiritually speaking. There are those that are walking side by side, iron sharpening iron, and there are those that are ahead of us in the faith and that are able to say, therefore, follow me as I follow Christ, my Son. And the Apostle Paul is certainly one of those. My Son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The Lord has called us to be strong, not weak. He's called us to be strong, not cowardly. He's called us to be strong in the grace that is in and through Christ Jesus. The power is there. God has given us the power to be strong men, and again by extension, women of God. He has given us the means by which we can be strong in the Christian life. And in particular, in the war that He has called us to be engaged in. The war that He has enlisted us as soldiers to fight a good fight within. 
And so again, verse 2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so Pastor Timothy's job as commanded and instructed by the Apostle Paul is to commit the things that the Apostle has taught him to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so it's a perpetual discipleship. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men who will commit truth to faithful men. And that is my hope for our time this weekend. Even as I drove to church today, I was praying that these truths that we rejoiced in, these truths that we felt the full weight and conviction of would not soon be forgotten, that they would weigh upon us and they would become part of our spiritual being as men and that we would minister them to others. So you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we're all able to follow by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, following those who are ahead of us in the faith, saying, follow me as I follow Christ. They're imparting to us truths, and, and we are to be faithful men who then turn to those behind us and impart them to those behind us and say, follow me as I follow Christ. In one sense, we're like the Lord's great track team. <laughs> all running our lap around the track that God has ordained for us, encouraging one another on in this run called the Christian life. Verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship. You must endure. You must endure hardship. If you're going to be strong and the grace is in Christ Jesus, you must endure hardship. Hardship. There are truths that are being imparted to us that are going to involve hardship. These truths that Paul imparts to Timothy to impart to faithful men, to impart to men behind them, these truths are not just facts for the great quiz in the sky. These truths are not just spiritual or theological details to be argued. These truths compel us to war for the glory of God and the redemption of sinners. These truths compel us to war against sin and Satan, to stand firm against the wiles of the devil with the full armor of God upon ourselves and the sword of the Spirit in our hands. And so the things that you have heard from many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure Hardship is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Good soldiers endure hardship. That, that is fundamental to soldiering. That is fundamental to the military. You will endure hardship. Now, some don't endure it. They experience it, but they don't endure it. They don't function within it. They don't press on doing their duty within the hardship. But good soldiers endure hardship. They don't look for reasons to go the other way. They don't look for reasons to hide when the hour of warfare has come. And so, as good soldiers endure hardship, and inversely or conversely, we can say that a bad soldier does not endure hardship. A bad soldier denies being a soldier at all. And you call that AWOL, absent without leave. I remember going back from boot camp after a week's leave or 10 days leave after boot camp. I went back to infantry school. And on the, the bus from the plane to infantry school, there was this long-haired guy and I'm wondering why is he doing, you know, why is there a civilian on the bus going to infantry school? And what it was is he had graduated from boot camp and gone on his 10 days leave, and six months later, he came back. He went AWOL right out of boot camp. And now he was coming back to face the music. Sad deal for him. There was another man when the call came to go overseas. 
who decided to just miss the call. And, and mind you, you don't miss the call. <laughs> you know this is coming. Everybody's been training for it. Everybody's been preparing for it. When the final day came to kiss the wife and say goodbye and get on the ship and go to a war zone, he didn't show up. And the ship left without him. Well, his career was over. And he suffered for that. Because he wasn't going to endure hardship. And he didn't immediately get out of the military. He finished his contract, but he finished his contract from sergeant down to private. And they gave him every nasty job they could think of until finally he got out with an other than honorable discharge because he was not a good soldier. He would not endure hardship. He, it's called missing the movement. He missed the movement. His unit moved out to war, and he missed the movement. And there was great shame in that. Great shame. And he had, he had to endure that shame the rest of his contract. Tragic. We need to feel like he felt about missing the movement, the movement that Christ Jesus has commanded, go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and preach repentance to all nations. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has called us to be soldiers. He's called us to war. Now, often when we present the gospel of Jesus Christ these days, or when we describe the Christian life, we do anything but present it as soldiering, enduring. Follow Jesus, endure. Follow Jesus, go to war. Follow Jesus, suffer. (laughs) That's not our presentation. But that's the reality that the Lord has called us to to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. No one engaged in warfare. Much of the church has no concept of warfare, much less being engaged in warfare. They picture the church as like a hospital for the mentally impaired And we're just here trying to help you with all your mental impairments to make it another day. Offering band-aids to your mental boo-boos. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. What you find in the Bible is that in Christ Jesus, we are more than victors. We're not mentally impaired. We're not victims. We are victors in Christ Jesus. And in this era of growing persecution, in this era where the governments of this earth are turning against our God and His Christ and His gospel and the Word of God and the moral standards that flow from it, many are seeing themselves as victims and wanting to hide. We're not victims. We're victors. And we're soldiers. And the war ultimately is already won. We're just fighting battles. Doing the mop-up work, looking to set captives free before the captain of our salvation comes and with the sword of his own mouth puts down mankind's insurrection once for all. And so, the Lord has enlisted us. He has called us to endure hardship as good soldiers. The reality of the Christian life is warfare. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, that doesn't mean there's no R and R. That doesn't mean there's no ping pong. It doesn't mean there's no golf. It doesn't mean uh, there's no time with wives or children. No, those are precious and wonderful. Gospel ministry times with children. Those are precious and wonderful, relational, sweet, fun restorative, strengthening, encouraging times with wives and children, families, and the family of God. Yet, it is R&R. 
It's relaxation and recuperation. You've, you've come off the front line to get strong again to go fight another fight the next day. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. It's not that you have no involvement in the affairs of this life. You're not entangled in them. You're not caught up in them. The sum all of your life is not the affairs of this world, where I work, where I want to retire, uh, where I live, um, what I drive, what I'd like to put in the water and scoot around on, what I'd like to put on a trail and ride around on. If these things have captured our heart and are where our mind and our energy and our resources, our strength, where we're spending our life, then we become entangled. And the Lord would have us not entangled in the world, but as warriors, as soldiers, on the field of the battle, on the field of battle, who return from battle, and yes, enjoy some of the things of this world that the Lord has provided, and that's fine. The Apostle Paul was clear on that. He had learned to be satisfied in plenty and in want. The Lord had times of relaxation and rest with the disciples, and then they would go back to ministry. Again, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier with the affairs of this life, this life, this one brief life, this life that is quickly passing away. We can't be entangled in that. We need to live for eternity. We need to live for eternal souls. We need to live for the eternal glory of God, the redemption of eternal souls. That what? That we might please Him who enlisted us as soldiers. That we might please Christ who enlisted us. You see, Jesus did not just save you from sin. And again, it's almost blasphemous to say just. (laughs) Jesus gloriously saved you from sin. He gloriously saved you from the penalty of sin called hell. He gloriously saved you from the power of sin. Sin in Christ does not rule over you. You're no longer a slave to it. You're a slave of Christ, a doulos of Christ, born again from above. But there's more. He has enlisted you as a soldier. He has called you to fight a good fight as His faithful Soldier who endures hardship as a good soldier. A good soldier. By the grace of God, I endured hardship as a good Marine and was commended for it. It would be to my great shame if I had spent six years in the United States Marine Corps and not served well for God and country and been commended for it. We need to have a conscience. We need to care about well done, good, and faithful do-loss. And we will not hear well done, good, and faithful do-loss if we are not good soldiers, according to the Lord's definition. We have, in many circles, reduced Christianity to a, yes, I believe in Jesus, fairly casually, and okay, I guess I'll be baptized, And yeah, I'll show up in church occasionally or maybe even regularly, but that's about it. And most of the people in my life would rarely know that I was a Christian. And I'm certainly not going to go out of my way to let people know that I'm a Christian, especially in today's culture. And I'm certainly not going to go out of my way to call them to forsake their idols, to forsake their false gospel, to forsake their idolatry of self and to cease their war against God, to repent and confess Christ as Lord, because they won't like me. And I want people to like me. And maybe I won't be as upwardly mobile as I would otherwise be in my career. And I really enjoy my career. I really enjoy the affairs of this life and what they bring in this life. But that's so short-sighted because this life is so brief. 
And would we really want to be more upwardly mobile at the expense of the lives and souls of those around us? All too often, that's exactly what we are. More upwardly mobile in our community, in our circle of friends, at the grocery, and in our careers. Everyone thinking well of us. Thinking, well, it turns out humanism is true after all. People are basically good. Because look, there's this woman, there's this guy, and he or she's so nice. But they don't know it's not just you being nice. It's you manifesting the fruit of the Holy Spirit, loving them, but you're not actually loving them when you retain the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you will not unsheathe the sword of God's Word as faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. We have not truly loved our neighbors, but we are helping to convince them of the lie of humanism that, look, there are, there are good people in the world. Only if they knew what you're retaining, if they knew what we're holding back from them, they wouldn't think we're so good, now would they? The famous comedian of the name of Penn at one point said something like this regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christians. He said, if this is true, if it's true that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that He came down and suffered upon the cross and took hell on behalf of all those who repent and turn to Jesus, if this is true, then this must be shared. It must be declared. It's the duty of every Christian. And to not do so would be a vast crime against their fellow man. And this is an unregenerate rebel against God. But he saw the reality, the basic reality, that if this is true, if there is a holy God offended at sin, who has made a place called hell for sinners to dwell in forever, and yet there's a loving God who sent His Son to suffer and die for sinners to rescue them, and that sinners must repent and confess this Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord to be saved. Surely this must be declared. This must be shared. He understood the logic of it. He understood the love of it. He understood the vast lack of love in withholding it. What do we call vast lack of love? Hate. Hate. If we knew certain destruction, physically speaking, awaited someone, if they go through that door, terrible things are going to happen. They're going to fall into a great abyss and be swallowed up by it. And we didn't tell them, don't go through that door. We just were apathetically silent because we didn't want to alarm them. And we didn't want anyone around us to think that we were being an alarmist. Would we have loved them in our apathy or hated them or something in between? I don't think it's anything in between. We've hated them. And so the Lord Jesus has enlisted us as soldiers. Verse 5, and also if anyone competes as athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So he moves away from soldiering and warfare to, if you will, the athletic war, to compete and win. And by the way, that's biblical. We live in an era of Christian weeniness where it's wrong to win. It's wrong to compete and win. The Apostle Paul talks about laying blows upon the enemy as a pugilist. Don't be a shadow boxer. Lay blows upon the enemy. If anyone competes in athletics, oh, that would be wrong, says Paul. No, he uses it as an illustration. Athletics are good, generally speaking. Can they become idolatrous? Yes. But competing and striving to win when it's done for love of God and even love of neighbor, right? I want iron to test iron in athletics and say, oh, I want to run harder. I want to throw further. I want to be more agile. It's good for us in so many ways. But the Apostle Paul uses athletics here as an illustration of the Christian life. If anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You must compete according to the rules. This game has rules. And if you don't compete according to the rules, you won't when you've cheated there are many christians i would say the vast majority of christians who think they can make up their own rules of the christian life 
And at the end, they'll hear, well done, good job. There is the Christian life that Christ defines, die to self, take up the cross, follow me. And, and then there's so many other ideas of the Christian life. There's only one Christian life that the Lord has defined and given rules for that, we're, that we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's just described that Christian life as soldiering, as enduring, as fighting a good fight. Here as competing in athletics so as to win. Who likes to compete and win? Good. You should. It's biblical. I challenge you to bring that over to your Christian life. Not in a prideful sense, but you want to compete and win. You want to win souls to Jesus for His glory so that you can be crowned for your service, and throw those crowns at the Lord's feet for His honor forevermore. Because you will know that it's He who has worked within you both to will and to do His will. Nevertheless, you're commanded to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Nevertheless, you're commanded to go therefore. You're commanded to proclaim Christ. You're commanded to soldier on and endure to advance the kingdom of Christ and the souls of men. But when you do, you know it's the power of the Spirit of God that has enabled you to do so. And all glory belongs to the king. Years ago, Joshua was at, a, I believe, an OSU baseball camp. At one point, the coach told all the boys, and these are great athletes from all across the state and out of our state. They're all there, and they're there looking to excel and to bump up and get picked up at some college, get a scholarship and whatnot. And he stops them, and there's a lot of young, proud boys on the field. He stops them, and he says, look up at the stands. He says, you're not here because you're fast, because you're skilled, because you're a great athlete. You're here because of them. You're here because of your parents. They have poured their life into you, their time into you. They have built everything that you are. But there's one step further, over and above that stadium. (laughs) It's God who gave you parents who cared about you, who built into you. It's God who gave you a healthy body. It's God who gave you endurance. It's God who gave you agility. It's God who gave you strength. It all belongs to Him. And He left off that last part. But praise God for this illustration. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. To compete for a crown. To compete for Well done, good and faithful servant. Again, not out of pride, but out of love for Christ and a desire for His name to receive the full honor from your life, your life that belongs to Him. The coach there wanted them to know that their last name in the back of their jersey is not to their glory when they hit the home run so much as the glory of their parents. But again, our name is Christian. That's our name. We're followers of Christ. And all glory, sola de gloria, belongs to God and His Christ, our Lord and our Savior. But we don't often think in the athletic competition sense. We don't often think in the soldiering sense. When I joined the United States Marine Corps, I joined it out of love of nation, as a patriot. And I'm still a patriot. I still love our nation. And I'm glad to have served the United States of America as a United States Marine. I serve Christ as a soldier of the gospel. But should I not want to bring honor to His name? Should I not be proud of His name? Should I not be proud to have served How many veterans do you see with hats on in their old age? And God bless them. I'm thankful for them. And you know, that time in their life, in our lives, it marks us. It marks us. I can't say how many times in a week, almost in a day, that I think about that time in my life and those men in my life. I still care for their souls. They're like my brothers. But where's our esprit de corps, our love of our military unit, our love of our team, right? For sports teams that we never even played on, that we've never even seen in real life, we will cheer, we'll throw food, 
we'll put you know banners outside of our house. We'll invite everybody over. We'll call and text and email. Oh, they won. Are you watching the big game? Where's our passion for Team Jesus? Where is it? If anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. We're to be like hardworking farmers, sowing the seed of the gospel and letting the Lord and His sovereignty bring about redemption, bring about life, and then further seed from that harvest. You don't receive a harvest. You don't receive the food unless you sow the seed. A farmer that's lazy, you go by his fields. And my first job was dairy farming. And dairy farming involves soybeans and corn and alfalfa hay and cows and a lot of smelly stuff. And yes, milk. (laughs) But there's endurance and there's suffering. There's 4 a.m. There's cows who want to kill you. Dairy farmers are men. And the good dairy farmers are disciplined. They're virtually slaves to the land and the beast. They've got to get up. They've got to plant. They've got to harvest. And above all, twice a day, they've got to milk. 4 a.m., 4 p.m. And the good farmers produce good milk. Their cows are healthy. Their milk sells at a great price. Their fields are planted. Their fields are harvested. Everything's in order. Their machinery works. And it's very productive. The sinful farmer's field, you can tell. It's it's not well planted. There's lots of patches here and there that are dead. It's not well harvested. The cows suffer. And thus the volume suffers. The amount of milk they can produce suffers and often is tainted by the milk of sick cows. And so we're to be like good farmers, faithfully, diligently sowing the crop and waiting on God to bring that harvest and eating, if you will, the fruit thereof, rejoicing in that fruit Verse 7, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Charles Spurgeon preached on this text June 26, 1870. And I'll just give you some excerpts from his message. He says, many men, many minds, in reference to what a Christian is, there have been very many and diverse opinions. According to the notions of some, a Christian is an exquisite of remarkably delicate tastes. He cannot worship except it be in a place whose architecture is correctly Gothic. Otherwise, his dainty soul will be shocked. He is unable to offer prayer aright unless his devotions are uplifted upon the wings of the choicest music. And even then, scarcely will he be successful unless he is aided by sundry gentlemen whose pedigree, like that of racehorses, can be clearly traced, and whose garments the tailor has fashioned according to the directions of the ecclesiastical fashion book for the various seasons of the year. If this is to be a Christian in these days, it must be confessed that Paul has said little concerning this delicate and artistic sort of creature. With some, a Christian is a spiritual gourmet. He attends upon the ministry of the Word for no purpose but to be fed. He strongly denounces every sermon that is aimed at the conversion of sinners, for he looks even upon the Bible itself as a book solely intended to yield him personal consolation, personal benefit. The more any doctrinal teaching promises him a monopoly of good things, and the more it excludes others, the better he enjoys it. It being to him a particular part of the sweetness of the feast, to believe that but a very slender company may dare to partake of it. For him, to live is to enjoy and not to serve. To gratify his selfishness, he would blot out the free invitations of the gospel. He is not a hearer only, but certainly he is not a doer. He is a hearer and a feeder, in a certain coarse sense upon the word of God and nothing more. That is not Paul's ideal of a Christian. He does not picture him with his napkin in his hand sitting at a banquet table, but rather with a sword girt upon his thigh ready for conflict. 
See, you should all be sitting this morning uncomfortably because your armor and your shield and your sword, you're a little uncomfortable. To some, the highest form of Christian is a great reader, a profound student of the best books for the purpose of composing spiritual riddles. He reads for no practical end. He's a picker out of words, a speller of syllables, a magnifier of microscopic points, a proficient in biblical hair splitting. The more a passage perplexes others, the more sure he is of its meaning. He cares most for the things which have least practical bearing. He is a peeper through the spiritual spyglasses, fancying that he can interpret what wiser men leave to God to expound. He's a hunter after spiritual conies, which if caught would never pay the huntsman for his toil, while the weightier masters he hold, matters he holds in small esteem. This does not seem to have been Paul's conception of a Christian, for the apostle was no lover of foolish and unlearned questions which these men strive after. And I'm afraid that I must add that with some, the ideal of a Christian is that a man who can sleep out his existence in blissful serenity, a man who, having believed or professed to believe in Christ, has settled his life work forever, and from now on can say, Soul, take your ease. You have from now on much goods laid up for many years in your own security. Eat, drink, and be merry in the gospel. But as for feeding the hungry or clothing the naked, are you your brother's keeper? What is that to you? See you to yourself. And if you yourself are right, let, f- let fate or providence or sovereignty take care of the rest. God is sovereign. If they'll be saved, they'll be saved. Paul does not appear to have pictured true believers as sluggards, sound asleep upon the downiest of beds. His description of a Christian in the text is that of a soldier. And that means something far different from either a religious fop whose best delight is music and millinery or a theological critic who makes a man an offender for a word or a spiritual glutton who cares for nothing but a lifelong enjoyment of the fat things full of marrow or an ecclesiastical slumber who longs only for the peace of himself. Paul represents him as a soldier and that I say is quite another thing. How popular, popular do you think Charles Spurgeon was with the broader ecclesiastical world? So popular that they all cried out against him regularly. So popular that his own brother led out the group that threw him out of their Baptist denomination because he dared blow the whistle on them and cry foul. What you're calling the Christian life is not the Christian life. What you're calling ministry is not ministry. You make much to do about nothing or much to do about little, but not much to do about Christ and his gospel, which is why we are here, which is why he came into this world. And for that, he was hated by a great many. Today, he's considered a hero. Today, he's quoted because he's a popular man to quote by many men who would have joined those who hated him if they were alive when he preached and walked the earth. He goes on, for what is a soldier? A soldier is a practical man, a man who has work to do and hard, stern work. He may sometimes, when he is at his ease, wear the fineries of war, but when he comes to real warfare, he cares little enough for them. In other words, the dress uniforms. They're not about the dress uniforms. They want the military fatigues on because they're men of war. The dust and the smoke and the garments rolled in blood, these are for those who go soldiering. And swords, all hacked and dented armor, and bruised shields, these are the things that mark the good, the practical soldier. Truly to serve God, really to exhibit Christian graces, fully to achieve a life work for Christ, actually to win souls. This is to bear fruit worthy of a Christian. A soldier is a man of deeds, not of words. He has to contend and fight. In war times, his life knows little luxur- luxurious ease. In the dead of the night, perhaps the trumpet sounds to boot and saddle just at the time when he is most weary. And he must hurry to the attack just when he would prefer to take his rest and sleep. 
The Christian is a soldier in an enemy's country, always needing to stand on his own watchtower, constantly to be contending, though not with flesh and blood, with far worse foes, namely with spiritual wickedness in high places. The Christian is a self-sacrificing man, as the soldier must be. To protect his country, the soldier must expose his own bosom. To serve his king, he must be ready to lay down his life. Surely he is no Christian who never felt the spirit of sacrifice. If I live unto myself, I am living unto the flesh, and of the flesh I shall reap corruption. Only he who lives to his God, to Christ, to the truth of God, to the church, and to the good old cause, only he is the man who can reckon himself at all to be a soldier of Jesus Christ. A soldier is a serving man. He does not follow his own pleasure. He is under law and rule. Each hour of the day has its prescribed duty, and he must be obedient to the word of another and not to his own will and whim. Such is the Christian. We serve the Lord Jesus. Though no longer slaves of man... So as to dread his frown, we are servants of Christ who has loosed our bonds. The soldier is full of suffering. He is a suffering man. There are wounds. There are toils. There are frequent stays in the hospitals. There may be ghastly cuts which let the soul out with the blood. Such The Christian soldier must be ready to suffer, endure hardship, not looking for pleasure of a worldly kind in this life, but counting it his pleasure to renounce his pleasure for Christ's sake. Once again, the true soldier is an ambiguous or ambitious being. He pants for honor, seeks for glory. On the field of strife, he gathers his laurels, and amidst a thousand dangers, he reaps renown. The Christian is fired by higher ambitions than any earthly warrior ever knew. He sees a crown that can never fade. He loves a king who best of all is worthy to be served. He has a motive within him which moves him to noble deeds, a divine spirit impelling him to the most self-sacrificing actions. Thus you see the Christian soldier, and it is one of the main things in the Christian life to contend earnestly for the faith and to fight with valor against sin. Paul does not exhort Timothy to be a common or an ordinary soldier, but to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. For all soldiers and all true soldiers may not be good soldiers. There are men who are but just soldiers and nothing more. They only need sufficient temptation and they readily become cowardly, idle, useless, and worthless. But he is the good soldier who is bravest of the brave, courageous at all times. He is zealous. He does his duty with heart and earnestness. He is the good soldier of Jesus Christ through divine grace who aims to make himself as able to serve his Lord as shall be possible. He tries to grow in the grace and to be perfected in every good word and work that he may be in his master's battles fit for the roughest and sternest service, and ready to bear the very brunt of the fray. David had many soldiers, and good soldiers too, but you remember it was said of many, these attain not unto the first three. Now Paul, if I read him rightly, would have Timothy to try to be of the first three, to be a good soldier. And surely I would this morning say to my dear comrades in this little army of Christ here, let each one of us try to attain under the first three. Let us ask to be numbered among the king's mighties, to do noble work for him and honorable service that we may bring to our master's cause fresh glory. Be it ours to covet earnestly the best gifts. And as we have had much forgiven, let us love much and prove that love by action. The title of this message is A Good Soldier of Jesus Christ. You can find it online, and it goes on and only goes to greater and higher heights. And hear me, he brings the sword of the Spirit to the church of Rome that was mightier in his day than ours. But he was faithful, a rare man in his day, 
to expose and to constantly war against the heretical, false, damning, so-called church of Rome. Calling his fellow Christians to fight a good fight, to rescue those perishing in this system of Satan, known as Roman Catholicism. That was the great threat of his day. The great threat of our day is not the Roman Catholic Church, although it is damning over a billion souls, and that is a great threat to mankind. What made the Roman Catholic Church historically a great threat to mankind was that the Roman Catholic Church was in power, and its power was not just within the walls of the church, it was in the halls of government. There was no separation of church and state. They governed over the state. They had the power of the state to put men and women in prison or to put them to death through various and horrific means. Today, the great threat of our hour is the secular state. The great threat of our hour, as we looked at at our men's advance, is a state that is sided with atheism, sided with Satan against God, a state that has said Genesis 1 is not true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not true. And thus, we're not accountable to the God who created the heavens and the earth. We're not His creatures. We have no definition of good and evil, right and wrong. We can define it all for ourselves. And having rejected God as our Creator, the eternal God being rejected. Now we've embraced the eternal cosmos and the creature worships the creation rather than the creator. Because you must either, the only two worldviews there are ultimately are that of the eternal God or the eternal cosmos. And so having rejected the eternal God, we have chosen the eternal cosmos. We have embraced Big Bang cosmology. We have gotten everything from nothing which is logically impossible. All of our modern science and secularism is built upon the premise of nothing producing everything. And then we have a material universe, a lifeless material universe, and we have another miracle of secularism, another miracle of the satanic lie. Life is spontaneously produced. And in that life and beyond that life, everywhere in God's creation, we have information. That's a third tier of miracle in the atheistic, satanic, secular worldview that's raging against God. Uh, We have matter from nothing. We have life from nothing. And then we have information from nothing. And information always, always comes from a mind. There are no known exceptions. And yet, the so-called scientific worldview that has rejected the God, the eternal God, and embraced the eternal cosmos has near infinite amounts of information that we've just begun to scratch the surface of everywhere around us with no information giver, and we've made peace with that. It takes far more faith to be an atheist, far more faith to be a secularist, far more faith to be a Big Bang cosmologist, a Darwinian evolutionist, than it does to believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But having warred against God and declared God to no longer be the creator and having many Christians bowing before Satan's lies, making peace with Satan's assault on Genesis 1, 1, and 2. Because remember, we don't even get out of the first chapter and we have God saying, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. And now we have progressed in our war against God the creator to warring against God's creation in the sense that there are no longer even genders. And the nation of Canada has just declared by law that the idea that there are two genders is a myth. Our secular world has declared the Creator God a myth, declared the creation of the material universe a myth, the creation of life a myth, the creation of information a myth, and the creation of and design of gender to be but a myth. We're descending into madness. But wait, this secular society is united to our government. We thought the the separation of church and state was a good thing. Many did. And yet they have 
made that to mean, and by the way, that, that was no foundational document that's not in the Declaration of Independence, that's not in our Constitution, that concept of separation of church and state. But now they've used that concept to say that there's a separation of state and God, that we must essentially outlaw God. And so we have pushed God further and further out. God is not creator. God's laws are not our moral laws. We put the Ten Commandments out of the public realm, out of the school system. How many of you had the Ten Commandments somewhere on the school property when you were a kid? I did. But they're gone, long gone. Now the sociologists are there teaching boys that they're not boys and girls that they're not girls. In fact, they may be cats, they may be dogs. They may be penguins. Would you like to walk like a penguin around the school halls? That's where we have gone in our rebellion against God. The greatest threat to the church, and the church has capitulated. The church has given up Genesis. It doesn't matter. You can be a Christian and not believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in the way that God says. Yeah, that could be just some kind of analogy. You don't have to believe that, you know, it was... It was uh, 7,000, 10,000 years. You, know, you can believe in eons and eons and eons of time. You can believe that death and suffering produced life and mankind instead of God creating species and mankind as the pinnacle to rule over them in His image. You can believe that over eons of time, life developed in a soup, crawled out, evolved, Century after century, eon after eon, to become a humanoid. And then God breathed His Spirit into a humanoid, ape-like creature. And that's the Adam and Eve myth. You can be a Christian and believe that God's Word is myth. That has been taught for decades. I'm here to tell you, you can't. And having given up such ground for so long, now we're to the point where Christians are ready to give up Gender, to give up God's definition of sexual sin was one thing, but now we're giving up God's definition even of gender and trying to make peace with this secular war against God. We, we share a road with a church that is doing just that. You can be a Christian, a homosexual too. You can be a Christian, a lesbian too. But the Word of God says you cannot And so they're bowing to the state. It would be like bowing to Rome in Luther's day. And saying, oh, it's all right. You can be a Christian. You can be born again from above and partake of the Mass too. You can eat Christ's flesh and drink His blood for redemption. You don't have to believe that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. It can be faith and sacraments. In today's world... Our reformation in the church is foremost, not that we're done with Rome, with a billion Roman Catholics still on the planet. We are not done, but they're not in power. Thus, they can't subjugate us. They can't criminalize us. In the Reformation era, they criminalized the church because the church exposed the heresies of Rome. In our era, they're criminalizing the church because we're exposing their denial of the Creator and the Creator's design for mankind. In gender, male and female, no other options. And in sexuality, a man and a woman for life, united in marriage, is the only place for righteous sexuality. Outside of that, it is evil. That statement is considered by our secular world and more and more our secular government. That statement is considered evil and unlawful. In Canada, they just outlawed conversion. Meaning you can't compel, you can't call a homosexual or lesbian to repent and leave their lifestyle of abominable sexual perversion, confess Christ as Lord and be saved. That that is a criminal act. And that's where the nations of the Western world, the former Christian nations, that's where they're all moving. Canada's just ahead of us. And that's where your neighbors, by the way, that's where your neighbors are moving. And they're doing it with knowledge. 
They have been saying for some time that their aim is to teach your children that you are evil because ultimately you believe Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator, we're the creature. And he made mankind in his image, male and female. And so we need reformation. We need to fight a good fight. We need to go to war. We need to speak truth with love everywhere, everywhere. We cannot have peace. We cannot have peace. We dare not. Hear me. You dare not. You confess Christ as Lord. You dare not call a woman a man, a man a woman, a boy a girl, or a girl a boy. You dare not do it. Do not cross that line. If you've already crossed it, repent and come back. There will be many who profess to be followers of Jesus who bow before this secular war against God and against the souls of men and women. You need to bow before Christ and Christ alone. Stand resolute, stand fast, and pay whatever price you have to pay for it that you might hear, well done, good and faithful, do loss. As a good soldier, enduring, enduring, just like the reformers endured before us as they warred against Rome, declaring, defining, defending the gospel of Jesus Christ from the heresies of Rome that dominated and ruled the world. We must do so in our day. We must preach or die doing so. And we must preach or die, meaning if the church does not preach. The church, not just some evangelist somewhere, not just some preacher somewhere. The church, this is on us as a whole. If we do not stand up and follow Jesus as good soldiers of Christ, our God... Our gospel, our law, God's gospel, God's law, our faith, we ourselves, our children, if they follow Christ, will all be outlawed. It'll all be outlawed. And they will all suffer. But that's not the first and foremost reason to be a good soldier, to endure suffering. The first and foremost reason is because Christ has enlisted you. Because he's your captain, he's your king, he's your master, he's your savior, and you love him. You love him. I've heard many say in my life, I'd follow that man to hell. I'd, I'd charge the gates of hell with squirt guns with him. Will you follow Christ to the gates of hell to rescue sinners from rushing headlong in? Will you suffer hell's fury in this world as the hell yuns, those that serve Satan? Because if they don't serve Christ, they serve Satan consciously or unconsciously. Will you suffer their wrath? Because it's coming. To some degree, it will come for you if you're faithful as a good soldier to endure and to fight a good fight, to actually unsheathe the sword and declare God's truth in this world that's warring against God from the very first chapter and the very first verse. We must, by the grace of God, be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And hear me, saints. Let's do the math momentarily, and then we'll close. Your wages are good as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Your retirement plan is good as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Don't let Satan call your Lord a liar. And don't you dare call your Lord a liar by deciding that the wages aren't good. The retirement plan is not good. So I'm going to seek wages elsewhere and retirement elsewhere. Through other means, I'll redefine the Christian life. To get my wages now, the wages I want, the wages I like, those are short-term wages. And it's a short-term retirement, saints. Fight a good fight. Soldier on. Endure for the eternal wage that rust cannot destroy Moth cannot destroy, and thief cannot steal. Well done, good and faithful doulos. Come into the kingdom I have prepared for you, where the streets, the very streets that you walk on, are gold beneath your feet. Do the math. Fight a good fight. Retire well. 
in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word, how beautiful, how precious, how powerful. We thank you for our elder brother, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, who went before us and fought a good fight in his day. May we, Lord, stand resolute with courage, with joy, with love for our King in this hour and battle on in your strength, in the power of your might. And we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.